and welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of the scriptures all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We are continuing in our major study of the book of Daniel, and today, as we look at the second chapter of Daniel, we find that this chapter contains the vision of the great statue and the dreams about it, and we discover the Dreamweaver. The Believer's Bible Class meets every Sunday morning on the lower level of the new First Baptist Church Dallas Worship Center. We are in the Lavorne Hall, and we meet at 9.15 a.m. We would certainly welcome you to our class if you're in the area. Well, Doug is at the podium, ready to begin, so let's go into the classroom and find a good seat. Here now is our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Now, we are in the midst of a study are really almost just starting a study of the prophecy of Daniel and his book. Remember, the first part of it is more historical narrative. Second part is uh, visions and prophecies. Although in the historical narrative, there's a few prophetical statements. Now, you had a question. Piggyback on something you said last Sunday, which I thought was really important, and that was Nebuchadnezzar's list. The bottom line was social skills. And I think a key element of Daniel's effectiveness was his outgoing. I think that... Uh, his outlook and how he handles himself. You're going to see that even more today. We're going to press that point. You're wise in picking that as a key point because that's how what the world sees first. All right. Now, we have a situation... With Israel. Do you remember in 722, the fifth cycle of discipline hit the northern kingdom of Israel and they were dispersed? And the question was, how do you live if you're not living in the promised land? They'd been there, the northern kingdom, for about 700 years, southern kingdom for about 800 years. Well, the northern kingdom, for the most part, completely failed in that test. So now you're Judah, you are, have been deported over to Babylon, and you're not, there's no temple, the city of Jerusalem is destroyed, how are you going to live? I am certain that there is a number of people there, a number of Israelites, who took this position. You know what? We saw what happened back in the promised land. God's abandoned us. He's just abandoned us. Now, it's interesting, because there is probably a number of people in this room who at one time or another has felt that exact same way. God's just abandoned me. Look what's happening. He's ob it's obvious he's abandoned me. There are others, though, like Daniel, who said, no, that is not the case. God does not abandon us. He has promised to be with us for all of time. And he will be here by our side, no matter where we are. Now, one of the keys to being able to access God is living an uncompromising life. And you remember last time we looked at, and I will bring this up from time to time, certain characteristics or traits of an uncompromising life. 
and they are first you will speak and act with an unashamed boldness. Number two is that you are confident of unearthly protection. Number three is you carry on with an unblemished, pardon me, an unhindered persistence. Number four is you choose to live by an uncommon standard. Number five is your outlook of life is controlled by an unblemished faith, a faith that's not stained by sin. Number six is that you are not unprepared for testing. Daniel was ready. And one of the things you're going to see today is that the test of chapter one prepared Daniel for the test of chapter two. And so you also, you become not a recipient Uh, You become a recipient of unlimited blessing, and finally, you uh, will have an immeasurable influence with the people around you and that follow after you. Now, I want us to see something. We didn't have a lot of time to go into this last time. I want us to look at number seven for just a minute. You become a recipient of unlimited blessing. I want you to think about this just a second. Well, before we think, I want us to read Daniel 1, 17 through 20. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, as we open your book and we look at this magnificent book of Daniel that you have preserved for us, and I thank you for doing that. I thank you that there were so many parts of it in the Dead Sea Scrolls that they found. And I thank you for how you have preserved it spectacularly for us. Help us as we study it, Father, to really glean from it the meaning and the emotion and the purpose that you have for us. Help us to live uncompromising lives. And so, Father, as we delve into the first part of chapter 2, guide us by your Holy Spirit. And may I say only the things you want said. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. And then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them. Now, how long was their course of study? Three years. At the end of the days, the commander of the officials presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. Who knows who the, the name of the commander of the uh, officials? Ashpenaz. Ashpenaz. And the king talked to them, and out of them... All, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. And as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in his realm. Now, did he find them ten times better than all of the people who were in their class? No, probably more than that. It was a th- Now think about this a second. Say you have a graduating class from medical school, and there's an oral exam. And the guy who's given the oral exam, on form, he writes, these guys are better than most of the doctors practicing today, maybe 10 times better, or from law school, or from engineering school. They're 10 times better than any of the lawyers out there. Wouldn't that be amazing? And yet that's exactly what happened here. Do you see uh, what's going on in Nebuchadnezzar's mind? These guys are valuable because there is none like them. Now, the next thing I want us to do is to step back and look at a little something from the point of view, not of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, 
but the old guy named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. If you studied uh, Western civilization in college, you've heard of something called the divine right of kings. And many of the kings that serve believe in this concept of divine right. That is, I don't have to answer to anybody but God. God put me in this place. And of course, their position was, I don't ever have to answer to God. I can just do whatever I want and say this is what God wants me to do. But most of us who would understand or come to think of this concept of the divine right of kings, we would say, that's bogus. There's no divine right of kings. You know, Charles I, he didn't have any divine right. Well, you might have to question that position if you were to read Jeremiah chapter 27, verse 4. It says this, Command them to go to their master, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Now, Lord of hosts, that's Yahweh Sabaoth. What does it mean when he's talking about the Lord of hosts and use that name? That's the name of, of war for God. That's the warrior name. When David was confronting Goliath, he said, you come against me with a sword, a spear, and a sling. I mean, pardon me, a sword, a spear, and a javelin. I come against you in the name of Yahweh Sabaoth. That was his weapon. That name of the commander of the armies of the Lord. So thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, thus you shall say to your masters, I have made the earth, the men and the beasts which are on the face of the earth, by my great power and my outstretched arm. I will give it to the one who is pleasing in my sight. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given also the wild beasts of the field to serve him. And all the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings will make him their servant. And it will be that the nation or the kingdom which will not serve him, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and which will not put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have destroyed it by his hand. Do you think that he has a divine right to rule? Who put him there? God did. And God is planning to use him. You say, but he's a wicked man. And God would say, so what? I'm using him for my purposes. And you're not looking far enough into the future saying he's a wicked man because that's going to change. That's like saying, this guy who's persecuting us, putting us in jail, killing us, this guy named Saul of Tarsus, he's a wicked man. Well, he was. God changed that. And so that's one of the things we're going to see. But who is he going to use to change Nebuchadnezzar? Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So we come now to chapter 2, and the question we must ask ourselves, because this is a magnificent dream. Most of us are familiar with this dream. Why would God choose Nebuchadnezzar to receive this dream? Why not Daniel or Hananiah? Why Nebuchadnezzar? Or could it be that he chose Nebuchadnezzar to receive this dream for some very special reasons? That this dream was going to be his means for introducing himself to Nebuchadnezzar and also introducing Nebuchadnezzar to Daniel. So let's see. Do humans really have control over the things they dream? 
Dawn? Question. When was chapter 2? Well, you're going to have to wait on that. Let's answer this question first. Do humans have any control over what they dream? I don't think you do. Your subconscious is the one that's manufacturing these dreams, so to speak. It's interesting how we're set up where we can create our own video. I mean, that's basically what a dream is, is it not? And sometimes it's so real, you can wake up and find the effects of the dream on you. You may be sweating and hot because you were running in your dream. Your heart may be palpitating because you were scared in your dream. Your spouse may be concerned because you're, he's get, or she's getting hit by your dream. But anyway, there is somebody who does control dreams and who can create dreams and insert them into the human psyche to dream. And that's the Lord God. Has this, is this something he does regularly? Well, you may not say regularly, but in Genesis chapter 20, verse 3, he came to Abimelech in a dream in the night and spoke to him. He was the one that provided Jacob with the dream of the ladder going into heaven. You hear that dream and it doesn't say anything more about it. And you never know anything about it until you get to John. And all of a sudden, Jesus is using that dream to explain something. And you see the purpose of having that dream. You know, the same thing happened with Joseph, who had the dream of the sun and the moon and the stars. And then you never hear anything more about it until you get to Revelation chapter 12. And then all of a sudden, oh my gosh, he's talking about the dream. That's why he gave him that dream. But Pharaoh's cupbearer and uh, baker, God put dreams into their hearts for them to, to dream. Pharaoh's dream, you remember? Solomon's dream when he... God offered to bless him with anything. You tell me what you want, he said to Solomon, and I'll give it to you in this dream. Solomon said, I want wisdom to rule your people. God said, because you asked for that, I'm going to give you everything else. Then Joseph, he was going to put his wife away because she'd been unfaithful, clearly, because he knows she's pregnant and I didn't do it. And then God came to a dream. No, that's my son that she's carrying. Changed everything for the dream. And so now we have a dream. I want you to look, though, at a problem, a problem that Dawn has intimated about. It's in, well, let's look in chapter 2 of Daniel, verse 2, and I want you to see this. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, and to tell the king the dreams. So they came in and they stood before the king. Now, is he excluding anybody from this order? No, didn't exclude anybody from this order. He wanted all magicians, conjurers, sorcerers, and Chaldeans. Now, what the progressives will tell you, those who attack the Bible, and especially this book, well, this is clearly a mistake. Because, wait a second, wasn't Daniel ten times better than any of these guys? Why didn't he bring him in? He would have if he was really concerned. So you see, this book is full of errors, and that's what they say. And you know, at first, it makes sense that if he was 10 times better, they wouldn't have ever done this without him and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, because they were all 10 times better than any of these guys he called in. Well, is that really true? The very simple answer is, when Nebuchadnezzar made this call, he didn't know they were 10 times better. Ah, we begin to see, isn't that the problem? You see, the progressives 
the liberals, those who attack the scriptures, they don't have their facts right. That's usually the problem, a lack of understanding. I try to explain it this way. Let's look at this right here. This, this is the passage that's up there to show you that they weren't there. It says, so the decree went forth, uh, all the wise men to be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill him. So now wait, they're having to look for him because he wasn't there, you see? And then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the, who had gone forth to the wise men, and he said to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason is the decree of the king's origin? Well, why is he asking that? He wasn't there. He didn't know what was going on. Why is this the case? And then Arioch explained it to him. Okay. So let's look at this chart, I think, is next, right? So here's Daniel's education process. It lasted three years, right? And you remember the first invasion that occurred was in 605 B.C., and that's when it happened. So the question Dawn astutely asked was this. Was chapter 1, this educational process, over before chapter 2 started or after chapter 2 started? That would be the question, right? They wouldn't know about Daniel if this education process ended after chapter 2 started. Now, here's something you've got to understand about the years of a king. In our nation, we have an election in November, but... Even though someone wins the election in November, they aren't made president until the 15th day of January. And so that is whatever the year following that leap year is, that's the first year of their presidency, and then the second, third, all the way to the fourth, okay? In, you have, they, have, they serve for four years from the day they're inaugurated until they step down. With the king, it's a little different in Babylon. What happens if you, you become the king when? Well, when your father dies, okay? Fathers don't die at the end of a year, necessarily. So what happens is, and it was in 605 B.C., and my research shows that he was crowned at the end of the month of Adar, which is sometime in the February-March range. That becomes what's called the ascension year the ascension year of the king. So you have the ascension year. Now, remember, their year doesn't start in January like ours does. There's a lunar cycle. They have their own cycle. But when the first month of the year comes, that's then the end of the ascension. So using our calendar, if you became king in March, your ascension year would be from March to December. You became king in November, your ascension year is from November to the end of December. Then January would start the first year of your reign. So he's now at the end uh, of the second year. He's in the second year, if you notice again, in the very first uh, verse, it says now in the second year of this reign. So in the second year, have the first year, now he's in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, but this event occurred here. This, uh, the end of chapter, the events of chapter 2 before Daniel's three-year education period was over. So when this happened, he didn't know about Daniel. But Arioch saying, well, he's one of these wise men in training. We'll just kill them too. We're killing them all. That's what the king said. I don't want them 
not follow the king's orders. So there is no mistake. There is no error. Uh, there is no reason to say, well, Daniel really didn't know what he was talking about. So let's look at this passage. Yes. Are you saying that when 605, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was already crowned king, or was he still under his father? I'm saying there's two various historical thinking on it. One, he became king shortly before that invasion. Two, he became king after that invasion. I believe that what happened was, and I think the best history is that he got word of his father's death while he was in Judah. And you, you don't want to wait. And then when you get there, somebody else is king and now in control. He immediately went back. So he took, made a quick peace, took these captives as, you know, apparently to be hostages to control Judah and went home, became king. And so it started right about the same time. So it was three years and it was not, it was like two and a half years, something like that, when these events occurred in, in chapter one. Now, let's look at verses one and three for a minute. Now in the, well, let's go back this is my sequence of events or my outline for the chapter. Uh, you have it in your topic headings uh, in the lesson notes. This is where I think we're going today, uh, probably to verse 23 and not just verse 21. But let's look first then at verses 1 and 3. Now, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Now, notice it says dreams. I don't think that was a large number of different dreams. I think he was having, experiencing the same dream over and over. And that's the only way they can say this. Now, it's interesting. What language is, is being used here to communicate these uh, when it was originally written? What? No. Hebrew. Hebrew. Aramaic's going to start in verse 4. So, and there's a, you'll see Daniel makes a natural transition, which is interesting the way he does that. So in the second year, he had dreams and his spirit troubled him. He was very concerned by this dream. Uh, what is going on? This word troubled means to push, impale, or beat persistently. So this dreams, to put it in modern vernacular, these dreams were beating him up. What is going on? Why am I dreaming this dream? What does this dream have to mean? And you go on and it says, and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. It means to be finished, gone, uh, even deserted. He couldn't sleep anymore. And we all know the effects of sleep deprivation. And my wife can tell you specifically about that because her husband snores at times. And so she suffers from sleep deprivation. Now, here we go. I think also Nebuchadnezzar, well, let me say it this way. Men and women who are not believers in the one true God are seeking after certain things. And uh, they want peace and security, personal peace at least, and security in what they're doing. Now, they get that from wealth or power, or glory, or achievement, or whatever else they think can give them those things, but that's what they're after. The problem is, you get a man like Nebuchadnezzar, does he have wealth? 
Absolutely. Does he have power? Yes, he does. Does he have a glory, an achievement? All of those things he has. And yet he doesn't have personal peace and security. And it's very concerning to him. I thought these things would give it to me. And they don't. You know, there was a time, I can't remember, it was the late 50s, early 60s, probably early 60s, mid-60s, when there was a woman that if you took a survey, a whole bunch of the women in our nation, well, I, I wish I could be Marilyn Monroe. Look at her, how beautiful she is. She's got everything. She's got this acting career. She's got this money. She even gets to spend time with the President of the United States. And let's not make any comments about that. And then what does she do? She kills herself because she says life's not worth living. You get everything you want, and you find it, it doesn't satisfy. And Nebuchadnezzar's in that situation. But sometimes these men, when they get in that situation, they say, well, you know what it's really about? It's about my destiny. What am I going to become? And this dream maybe says something about that. So I want to see. I want to know this dream. So he calls in these advisors. Look again at chapter 2. Then the king gave orders to all magicians, conjurers, sorcerers, and Chaldeans to tell the king's dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious or worried to understand the dream. Now, what are all these people who come in? I, I labeled them as the State Department, and you can see why. First of all, Khartoum is the first one, magicians. These are people who are involved in various forms of divination and even dream interpretation. Some people say necromancy is also part of the things they do. The next group is the Ashaf, and the Ashaf are enchanters and are skilled in performing incantations as well as in relation to healing. Then you have Kashaf, which are sorcerers, and they're skilled in the practice of sorcery and witchcraft. And the last one is Chaldeans. They are the priests of the mystery of the Babylonian religions, and they're really the leaders in this group, and they are over everybody. And these guys are basically bureaucrats. So how does Nebuchadnezzar view all these advisors? Well, let's look at verse 4. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. So now we have the change to Aramaic. And all the way through chapter 7 of this book, it'll be written in Aramaic and not Hebrew because it's written to the world. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants and we will declare the interpretation. Now, does that not sound reasonable? These guys aren't being unreasonable. You tell me your dream, and we'll give you the interpretation. I'm certain we can interpret it. And the king replied to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. Command from me is firm. I'm not changing my mind on this, fellas. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you'll be torn from limb to limb, and your house will be made rubbish heap. Now, does that not seem a little bit unreasonable? Well, let me tell you, there are some people who want to suggest, well, the reason he did that is the king forgot his dreams. Is there anybody in here who forgets their dreams? I do. In fact, I can remember in the middle of the night telling myself, when Julie wakes up in the morning, I got to tell her this. And I can remember I've got to tell her this, but I can't remember the dream. Some people are like that. So they say, well, he just forgot the dream. No, he didn't forget the dream. He does not trust these people. 
Oh, wait, how do you know that? It doesn't say in there that he doesn't trust them. Well, just read on down. Look in verse 9. That if you not, do not make the dream known to me, there's only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. See that? He didn't trust them. They've lied to him in the past to manipulate him and to con him. And so he says that. Now, he uses this uh, phrase, uh, refuse heap. Well, that's candy-coated. In Aramaic, this would be a rather coarse term. To get you the exact means of it would be manure pile or outhouse. Maybe outhouse that doesn't start with an O but an S. And that's what this term means. That's what he says, I'm going to do to you. I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to kill your family and turn your property into an outhouse. So we come to verse 6. But, he says, if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare the dreams, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. Now, in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, I think he's saying, I'm being abundantly fair. Yes, there's dire consequences if you don't do this. But if you do it, I'll reward you. And they answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare its interpretation. And the king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time. That is, that you're stalling me. Bargaining for time, inasmuch as you have seen that the command for me is firm, that if you do not make known to me the dream, there is only one decree for you. And then he recounts again how they have tried to con him in the past. So, the king promises this reward, and they probably interpreted dreams before, and they were not very accurate, or they were used to manipulate the king, and he thought that they were using him. Now, all of this is going on, interplaying, and these people think that they are doing what they're supposed to be doing and what's important to do, but God's in control here because he is setting both these, the State Department and the king, he's setting them up. It's going to be a perfect setup. And what happens here, you're going to see these bureaucrats are going to come in and they're going to say exactly what God wants them to say. Now, can God control what is said by unbelievers? The heart of the king is like channels of water. He turns it in the hand of God. He turns it whichever way he wishes. And he is going to set it up. And I want you to see this setup here. Starts in verse 10. Then the Chaldean answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king, inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing that the king demands is difficult, actually probably better translate, impossible, and there is no one who could declare this to the king except God's, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Now let's look at the three things, basically, they're saying to him. What's the first one, Jerry? There's not a man on earth who could declare this. Nobody could do this. It's impossible. You see that? Impossible. Number two, no king has ever required this. You're a great king. No great king has ever made a request like this because it is impossible. No one would do that. And who's the only one who could do this? The gods. We're not gods. We can't do this. You are being completely unreasonable, king. Now, they're not saying it straight out like that because they wouldn't last very long. But they have unwittingly set Nebuchadnezzar up. 
just as God wanted him set up. Now, let's see how God's plan comes into fruition. Verse 12, because of this, the king became indignant and very furious. Now, remember, he's got an anger management problem. And he gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth and the wise, that the wise men should be slain. And they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Now, why was the king reacting so strongly to this? You see, great men who are non-believers are usually unhappy and unsatisfied. And, and they want what they want. And I think Nebuchadnezzar very well associated this dream with his destiny. And, well, he should have, because that's what it was about. So you look in verse 14, and you're going to find a very important principle. Now, if you were to come into my inner office where I work, you'd see, if you looked in the right place, you'd see a little placard somebody gave me. It says, good lawyers know the law. Great lawyers know the judge. Now, that, that's not, that's a joke in the practice of law. But in reality of life, it's not a joke. It's not what you know, but who you know. And that's what is so important to see here. So look in verse 14. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He said to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he might would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation for the king. Now, I want you to notice something here. Were the, were the bureaucrats trying to get more time? They were stalling. They wanted more time. Did King Nebuchadnezzar give it to them? Daniel says once he learns from Arioch what goes on, what's going on, he went into the king's throne room and said, I need some time. Did the king give it to him? Yeah. Why? What's the difference here? First of all, for this student in the program to say, all right, Arioch, I'm going to go get more time for the king so I can do. And he goes in to the king's throne room. What is he exhibiting? He speaks and acts with unashamed boldness. He's also conducting himself and understanding that he has unearthly protection if he does and that he has an unblemished faith. And I'm going to demonstrate those three characteristics for you here in just a second as you see. And so Daniel didn't know what was going on, but how did he respond? Somebody came in, I'm arresting you. You're going about to be executed. Uh, how would you respond if all of a sudden your front door, there was a bunch of serious banging going on, open the door, who is this? The police. And you open the door. Mr. Brady, come with me. Why? Not only are you under arrest, we're taking you to be executed. I mean, what, I'm not getting a trial? Nope, you're being executed. But the fact is, how do you respond in a situation like that? Gary? This is actually, this is part of a fulfilled prophecy for Daniel. If you go to Deuteronomy 28, it says here, now David's following the Old Testament covenant, right? Yeah. So this is what it says. He says, the Lord shall cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They will come out against you one way and will flee before you seven ways. Is that to Israel? Okay. And did you hear that? In other words, God many times will raise up an enemy 
against you, to come against you, and then he will defeat them in front of you so that both they know and you know who God really is and who's in control. And so you begin to see this now. He goes in there and he makes this claim. And he says, so Daniel went in and requested of the king that he give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. And the king granted it, granted his request. Now, is Daniel saying, you tell me the dream and I'll tell you the interpretation? No, he's saying, I'm going to tell you the dream and the interpretation. You got to give me a little time, but I'm going to tell you both. Well, did Daniel know what the dream was? What did he know? The dream weaver, the guy who put the dream in Nebuchadnezzar's heart. That's what he knew. And he says, that's what's important. And so you look in verse 17. Then Daniel went into his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter, so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Now, I want you to see this. I want you to understand what's going on, and I want you to see the important meaning of this. Now, it's interesting. Who, once Daniel got his opportunity, he got his time, who did he go to first? Some of you are saying God. And the answer to that is, no, you're wrong. He went to his friends first. Why? Because he wanted multiple people going to God. Now, they went into their chambers, wherever it was, and they started praying. How long are they going to pray? One of two things. They get an answer. Arioch shows up, drags them out, and, and kills them. One of those two. That's why I call it a prayer to the death. I'm going to pray until you answer, or I'm prevented from praying anymore. Now, that's some serious praying, isn't it? I mean, ever, anybody in here ever done that before? There's a couple of us, maybe. But not too many. I want you to remember this, because we're going to talk about this again in just a minute. But it's one thing to go in and pray for yourself, with yourself to God about this serious problem. But he got... Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Was there anybody else he could have gotten? As far as we know, none. Anybody else would be somewhere else. David? Yeah, it's interesting. He was just interested in saving his little group to start with. And then later, later on, apparently God put in his heart to save all of them. Well, you think about it. If God answers his prayer, it doesn't just save him. It saves all the captives from Judah. It saves all the wise men and it's going to do some other things. And that's what's very, very important that I want you to see. Now, at the end, or the, the start, I guess you say, of verse 19, does God give him the answer? He uses this word mystery. That means something unknown. He tells them the dream and the interpretation. As soon as that happens, does Daniel get up off of his knees and rush into the king let me tell you, I've got it. Here it is. No. In the same way, when Jesus healed those 10 lepers, most of them ran off to the priest to have me declared that I'm, I'm whole, I'm well. But one came back, didn't he? And what did he do? He thanked Jesus for healing him. And what did Jesus say? Didn't I heal 10? And there's only one coming back here to thank me? What's with the other nine? Do you remember that? 
Here, Daniel thanks God. Now, it's interesting. Does Daniel's book report the contents of the prayers of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah? Does it report the contents of Daniel's thanksgiving to the Lord after he provides him the dream? Do you think that is saying something about what's important to God? And in fact, let me tell you, I'm going to suggest to you that you memorize this prayer of thanksgiving. You memorize it for several reasons. Number one, it's going to show you God's control. Also, it's going to teach you how you can pray when God gives you an answer. You don't just get the answer and then say, okay, I'm good. No, that's when you got to thank God. Look in verse 19b. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is him who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and he establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals, reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God, of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and power. And even now you have made known to me what we requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Thanksgiving should always come first. That's what it did. Now let's go back. And there's some things, important lessons I think we need to see from this portion of chapter 2. And the first thing is this. Man's inability is God's opportunity. You see, did not God set things up to clearly display the inability of these wise men? They couldn't perform. God's men can. And so he chose to show them this way. This dream was a way that God chose to provide himself with an introduction to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has no idea right now that God was the one who gave him all these victories whether it was at Carchemish or at Jerusalem or anywhere else that he was fighting. Uh, when he defeated uh, Assyria, he, he had no idea. He thought it was him, the might of the Babylonian Empire. No, it was God. And God is now introducing himself to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was given an opportunity here to compare human wisdom and understanding to that of God. And he's going to see the difference. And he found there was no comparison. You see, God's work is best displayed in the setting of human impossibility. That's where God's work is best displayed. God could use Daniel, though, and we need to see this. God can use Daniel because Daniel was prepared. Daniel was a man who had saturated himself with God's Word and, and God's Scripture. He had memorized it. He meditated on it. He knew it. How do I know that? Well, just look at his prayer and the things that he says there. And we're going to see it even more in the prayers to come in chapter 9 and chapter 10. That's what it shows it. Now, God is in the business of preparing men and women for a crisis that's going to come. God is in the business of doing that. Mark? Can you imagine the emotion that Daniel would felt when he got that answer? And also what it did to his faith to take it to another level. And just the emotion that God answered him just showed it very clearly 
just trying to live the emotion with it. They were blown away. I don't know about you, Mark, but it seems to me that when God provides me an answer or speaks to me, he also takes his hand and he squeezes my heart. And when he does, comes out of my eyes. I'm sure it's because I probably got an eyelash in there or dust or something like that. But you know what I'm talking about. Yet that's that emotion he's talking about. It's overwhelming and it's unsettling. The God of the universe wants to speak to me. Amazing. But you see that. Now, God is going to have a man ready for the crisis unless he doesn't want one ready for the crisis. And that sounds contradictory in a way. God was able to say at one time, I searched for a man among them who would stand in the gap for me for the wall, and I could find no one. He wanted to demonstrate the destitute spiritual barrenness of Israel at the time. When you say that, though, and you see the examples of men who were ready to stand in the gap in the midst of a crisis, like Moses, like Samuel, like Elijah, like Paul, like Gideon. You think, wait a second. Is there a crisis going on here in our nation? Does God have a man or a woman that he can use in the midst of this crisis? Is there one who's prepared? And when you ask that, you have to say to yourself, could I be that person? Let's look at something else. A crisis always provides the best opportunity to display godly character in a charismatic way. Is that what you were not thinking of earlier, Bob? God uses a crisis to show how a man or woman of God should react. And if they're reacting in a godly fashion, it draws the world into them. They begin to, hey, I follow that guy if this is the way he does. I can remember in this church, I was in a, uh, a department and I was working and there was something new we were putting in and there was a rebellion. But a guy by the name of David Wicker was in charge. And David Wicker stood up and he said, now, let me tell you, here's what we're going to do. And all the opposition just kind of faded away. And I said, I want to be like David Wicker. I want to be able to do that. You notice when we talked about this in his response to Arioch, he said, and he responded with discretion and discernment. What does that mean? Well, if you just look up the English words, discretion is the quality of being discreet, especially in reference to one's own action or speak, prudence or decorum. Now, I don't want anybody to make a suggestion that they know my ability of discretion. Because prudence and decorum sometimes are not the way I tend to respond. But that's the way a man or woman of God responds. First, here in this crisis, with discretion. But secondly, with discernment and acuteness of judgment and understanding. You see, stability under pressure draws the world towards you. Well, it says, we need people who can be stable under situations of stress. Daniel didn't panic because of his fellowship with his master. He didn't panic at all. You see, the knowledge of God, his nature, and his promises strengthens our faith and provides us with a confidence to be able to be stable and to respond with discretion and discernment. It provides us with the faith to be able to say, all right, give me a little time. I'll tell you the dream and its interpretation. You can rely on me, O king. 
I know where to get the answer. And you see, when we get to it, you'll see Daniel comes in and says, the king starts praying and says, not me. I didn't give you this. The God in heaven who wants to know you, he's the one who gave it to you. Now, most importantly here, I want you to see something. Because there's going to be crises in your lives. Some of you, if you haven't ever had any serious crises in your life, you're in trouble because you must be saving them all up. They're coming. But here's what I did. You will see at the end of the notes, three names, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And then you'll see a line after them. You see, there's two keys for facing calamity with stability and self-control. Number one is prayer. And number two is godly friends. You see, a man or a woman of God is a man or a woman of prayer. But sometimes, or even frequently, we need help. Now, there's a verse that I've always had a hard time understanding. It says, where two or more of us of you gathered together, I'm there in your midst. Well, wait, you're not there if it's just one? No, there's something about a group coming to God. So what I'm saying here is, you ought to think about this today. Take these notes home with you. If you were in this kind of a crisis, you were going to have to pray to the death. Who would be your Hananiah? Who would be your Mishael? And who would be your Azariah? Now, I've, I've done this little exercise in my life several times. And you know what's interesting to me? Always on that list, there's more women than men. Now, why is that? If I had to do it today... Two of the people that I would name are in this room today. And, but there would be two women on that list and one man. But the fact is, you're in trouble if you don't know who they would be. You have me say, well, now, you know, you're talking about serious prayer. I'll pray there to the death. I'm not sure I've got anybody like that. Well, then what you need to do is go to God and say, I need those people. Will you give them to me? You think God say, nah, you just do it on your own. No, God's not going to say that to you. He's going to say, he may say, there's a few things I've got to clean up first in your life where I can reveal these people because you might ruin the relationship if I don't fix it first. But yes, I have some people who would do that with you. And so that's what we need to be looking for. And I want you to think about this seriously today. Who would I write in there? Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could spend studying this first part of the chapter two. And I thank you that you have shown us the, revealed the curtain, pulled the curtain back and revealed us what's going on here and how you're working in Nebuchadnezzar's life and how you're working through Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. I thank you that you showed us that Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah and say, well, God, why didn't you reveal the dream to me? Why didn't you let me be the one who shares his interpretation? Help us to see, Father, that they will get their chance when we get to chapter 3. And you probably had everything to do with that, not having Daniel there. And so, Father, help us to understand that a man or woman of God is a man or woman of prayer and that we need to spend time in prayer. You know that I'm lacking in that. I need to spend more time on my knees with you. And I pray, Father, that you will help me to learn to be more faithful in that. I pray that all of us will do that and we will see the importance of prayer and that prayer is not getting ready for the work. Prayer is the work. I ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.